Hi, welcome to the Tax Chick Podcast. I am your host, Amanda Doucette, a self-proclaimed foodie, spin class, and Pilates enthusiast, and a tax lawyer. I fell into the practice of tax law despite having a lifelong hatred of spreadsheets, math, and numbers in general. Tax is complex, but it does not always have to be so complicated and shrouded in mystery. Join me and my guests as we unpack some serious tax topics and attempt to demystify the world of tax. So today, my my guest is fellow tax chick, Anna. And Anna, I just realized I did not ask you how to pronounce your last name. It's impossible. Don't even try. Okay. Anna M. Should we call you Anna M.? Zavaya <laughs> is my last name, but thank you for trying to pronounce it. <laughs> well, I'll go with Anna then. Anna is a tax lawyer, and she helps clients who are being audited or were reassessed by Canada Revenue Agency. She represents her clients at the CRA level, at the Tax Court of Canada, and also at the federal court. And most of Anna's clients are small and medium-sized businesses, as well as real estate owners, builders, and investors. And Anna is the founder of Advotax Law, which is a tax boutique law firm in Toronto, Ontario. And I will be posting some more details on how to connect with Anna in the show notes. So Anna, I feel like we were separated at birth and should have met many years ago, because when I read your bio... I feel like you're speaking my language. You're you're just you're such a good fellow tax chick to have met. I the feeling is mutual. I do think that I also do think that we were separated uh, at birth at some <laughs> point. We we speak the same language. If you're ever in Toronto, I'd love to meet you in person. And oh, it would be so fun. <laughs> yeah, I I really think it, it, it was meant in the stars for us to meet. I'm really glad we connected. Well, and I think that's one of the good things that came out of the pandemic is I feel like through LinkedIn and through other social media sites, it's allowed me to connect with other like-minded professionals. And that's really cool from no matter where they are, if they're in the country or if they're out of the country. I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. It, if, if anything good came out of the pandemic, it's one of the good things. Well, and I think you and I, was it a, was a direct message on LinkedIn? Is that how we ended up connecting? I think so. I think I saw one of your posts and that's when I realized that you, my sister from another mother, <laughs> I think it was me who reached out first and I'm, uh, I'm really glad I did. Oh, I'm so glad you did as well. And I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today because I feel like there are not a lot of other women who are practicing in tax litigation. And so one of my earlier episodes, um, I had Sophie Vergi from uh, Calgary, who's also a fellow tax chick, fellow tax litigator. And now I have you on. So I'm getting sort of a better representation of, of lawyers across the country. And uh, I just think it's a really, it's really great to have you on to talk about what's happening in Ontario right now and to talk about um, the exciting topic we're going to touch on, which of course is tax issues and real estate. But before we get into the substantive stuff, I did give you a warning that I always ask my guests the same two questions. And so I'm guessing you're probably, if you're like me, you're probably sitting there prepared with it sitting in front of you. Um, <laughs> so question number one is what is the last podcast you listened to? Video tax news. They do such an amazing job. I don't know how they, when they sleep, when they eat, when they see their families, because they are always up to date on all the developments that uh, are coming up from the government, the tax court, you name it. They've read it and they've done a podcast about it. It's amazing how efficient they are, how good they are, and I think they're doing an amazing job. They're my Number one, well, other than tax check, of course, <laughs> they're, they're my, uh, I gotta say, favorite resource to stay up to date on the tax development lately. They've done a, an amazing job, especially, after, you know, since the pandemic began. I agree with you. And I've I've been a longtime watcher of the Life in the Fast Lane, like their 10-minute video, because A, it's usually really entertaining because they're also very funny. And it's written in a very or, or, or done in a very easy to consume way. So I can have it on in the background as I'm doing something else. And I love that they stick to their 10 minutes. They give you their key topics and then you go on with your day. They are awesome. And they're great to follow on LinkedIn too. They are. 
I agree. So that that's a great podcast. Okay, the other question is, what is the emoji you use most often when texting? I actually had to go back and count uh, the uh, analysis of the my emojis and the by far the my most uh, my favorite emoji is the laughing crying one. I think it was the number one emoji used in uh, 2018. So I'm probably not up to date with the, you know, popular emojis that teenagers use nowadays, but I'm still using laughing, crying emoji all the time. You must be interacting with a lot of funny people. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I think so. Yes. Either they're funny or I'm funny or something funny, but in this day and age, you got to find a way to laugh at each other or at yourself. We just have to find a way to laugh. I agree. I like the little monkey, like, you know, the one that has his little hands over his mouth because he's giggling or the one who has his his hands over his eyes because he's done something silly. And I feel like I tend to gravitate to those two because usually I'm doing something silly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one too. So, I mean, I think a lot of the topics that I cover on our podcast um, tend to be very kind of business related. And that's, that's great. But I think today's topic not only has a business focus, but it also can apply to a bit of a broader audience because a lot of us have bought or sold a house at some point in our life. And so I always say tax is everywhere and people laugh at me, but tax really is everywhere. And whether you want to see it or not, um, it's going to get you at some point. And I think that real estate is one of the places where taxpayers can really get caught up in unexpected tax consequences and little hiccups. And so I'm so excited to have you here today to talk with me because you've explained to me that a large part of your practice involves helping people with real estate related tax issues. So we were going to talk about three topics today. We were going to start by talking about the principal residence exemption and why it does not apply to house flippers. And then we were going to talk about whether or not you're really saving money by paying cash for a home. And then the third topic being GST and HST considerations, and you've labeled them the profit killer. So without further ado, because these are really exciting topics, why don't we dive right into topic one about what is the principal residence exemption and why does it not apply to house flippers? Principal residence exemption is an exemption of capital gain that's subject to tax uh, and capital gain would uh, result from the disposition of uh, your residence or of a piece of a real estate property. Uh, When it's available, it's available when a person disposes or sells uh, property that's their capital property and that person or members of uh, his or her family use the property as their principal residence, meaning that they habitually occupy the the property, uh, they used it as their family home, as as one or maybe one of their family homes, but most people have just one home. So if you're selling your house, that you purchased for your family, you lived in it, you um, you, you spent you, you used it as your family home. When you sell that property, you don't have to pay tax on the gain you realize from the sale of the property. That's the rule in very general terms. And maybe we should maybe we should back up a bit and talk a bit about the concept of capital gains because I feel like sometimes we talk about that, but it's not always something that everyone understands. So the the idea that you indicated, you know, let's say you go and you buy a house, and I'll just use easy numbers because as I've indicated, I hate math. So you buy a house for a hundred dollars, and then you know two years later you go to sell the house for two hundred dollars. The difference between what you're selling the house for and what you originally paid for it is the capital gain on the property. And typically for most types of these sort of capital properties where you can make something when you sell it, there's usually a tax on the difference and that's a tax on the capital gain. And so when it's your principal residence, it's the place where you've lived, it's where your family lives, it's where your bills come to, it's it's your home. 
you can avoid any tax on the difference between the $100 and the $200. That's absolutely right. I could not have put it better. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I hate to get into speculation, but I've heard some rumors lately that this might be going away. Have you heard those rumors? I have. I even posted uh, a little blog post about it, about the rumors, and the rumors have been going around for a while. Um, and I don't know if you want me to address the rumors now, or we can save it for later in the podcast so th- people don't get too confused. But- That's probably a good point. I just got excited. Maybe it was your blog post where I first heard about this, but you're right. Let's let's table it. But I think we should talk about it later in the podcast, these rumors. Uh, okay. <laughs> So you've described what the principal residence exemption is. Um, In terms of how you're actually utilizing that exemption, perhaps we should talk a little bit about, you know, if you qualify for it based on, on how you and I have described it, what has to happen as a taxpayer to get the exemption? What has to happen is if you meet all the conditions, then what you should do absolutely is to discuss is to tell your accountant that you sold your house and in that year that you sold the house your accountant will prepare a special set of forms that need to be prepared and filed with the government if you do not file the forms um, there are penalties and there are serious consequences for not filing the forms. So the, the simple message is: if you bought a house for yourself, you lived it in the, you lived in it with your family, and after several years you sold it, talk to your accountant about it. Uh, discuss all the expenses you may have had associated with renovating the house, with selling the house, and your accountant should file a special set of forms to notify the government that you sold the house and that the exemption is available to you. And the other time, I guess, that you have to think about that is if you die, which I guess if you're the one that's died, you're not thinking about it. But if <laughs> if you're the person that's left behind, that death is, a, is its own form of deemed disposition or deemed sale. And so arguably, when a, a tax return is being filed for date of death, there also needs to be a record there of that person's principal residence and similar forms filled out and included. Absolutely right. Uh, if you die, our law deems you to have sold all your assets for fair market value right before your death. So in other words, the government says, before you go, you before you cross over to the other side, we still want you to pay tax on all the assets, on all the gain in your assets. So that's why the rule is there, and it applies to all properties, including uh, your real estate properties. But like I said, if principal residence exemption is available to you, there may not be any tax consequences uh, from your death um, and deemed disposition on death. And I guess it's important to sort of realize that this filing requirement or this notification to the government about the sale of a principal residence is still a fairly new requirement. And, and I mean, Maybe it's not as new as I'm thinking because the time goes by so quickly, but it's probably been in the last five years, I think even maybe a bit sooner than that, that this requirement actually came into being. And so if you're listening to this and you've bought and sold a house, but it's been, you know, 10 years ago, there was no requirement at that point to to tell the government um, on your tax return in the same way. And that requirement has now changed. And there's this requirement now to actively advise the government when you're buying and you're selling. You're absolutely right. If I remember correctly, the uh, new rule came into effect starting 2016. Mm. And the consequences for not uh, advising the government, for not telling the government uh, that you claim in your principal residence exemption can be quite severe to the point that you may not be entitled to the principal residence exemption. That's how serious it is. So make sure you talk to your accountant if you sell your house and make sure you get things right. And, and if, you're late, if you just realize that you're late, you can still file uh, that form late. There are just maybe penalties uh, for that. 
Absolutely. That's what I was just about to say. I feel like our brains are connected. It's like if you're late, the end is not near. There are still options that are available to you, but you have to reach out to somebody to talk to them um, about it. So the other thing too that I, I understand is a bit of a change in the last couple of years is I often get clients say to me, well, Amanda, like how is the government going to know if I don't tell them. And my understanding is that now there is a bit of a connection between the various land titles offices and Canada Revenue Agency, such that they are getting information sent to them. Am I correct in that? Have you heard of that as well, Anna? Not only have I heard about it, most of my practice comprises of files, audit that were originated by uh, the CRA reviewing land transfer records. So there should be, shouldn't be any doubt in your mind that the CRA will know that you, sell, you sold your house and you, sh- you have to assume that that transaction may be reviewed and if you're not forthcoming, if you're not truthful, there will be consequences. It's it's kind of scary. Like they they do know what's going on and and it is important to be upfront because you can get a lot further by being upfront than being caught on the back end. So um good for people to know. So in in terms of this principal residence exemption, we we talked a little bit about the concept of house flipping and I think you know, especially when real estate started to go up there for a while, there was a lot of people that were either in the business of house flipping or were kind of doing it on the side. But they were sometimes running into some issues with the principal residence exemption. So are you able to explain a little bit about why house flippers, you know, A, who are house flippers? What does that mean? And then B, when are they not going to be able to utilize the principal residence exemption? There is an illegal term, house flipper. How, uh, house flipper is something we use colloquially when we describe someone who purchases and sells houses to make a quick profit. And when I say quick, there isn't a magic number of months or years that need to, you need to hold the property in order not to be a house flipper. It all really depends of, on many facts and considerations. So in very general terms, if you are uh, signing your purchase and sale agreement with uh, the seller of the house, and as you sign in, as you, as you put in your name under that agreement, you're thinking to yourself, this will be a good business adventure. I want to buy it, and then I hope to sell it for a profit. If that's your primary consideration as you sign in that agreement, most likely you will be deemed to be a house flipper, meaning that this isn't your capital investment uh, this isn't, uh, you're not buying a house for yourself or your family to live in. You're not buying your house as an investment to rent it long term. You're hoping to purchase it and then maybe renovate it or wait a little bit and then sell it for a profit. If profit is your primary intention, your primary motivation, then you're a house flipper. And I know these things are not set in stone. My clients always ask me, well, like how does Siri know what my intention was? Only I know what my intention was. Or or I'll just tell the Siri that my intention was A when really everything looks like the intention was B. So the Siri just assumes what your intention was based on, you know, the whole your whole story based on what you do for a living, based on how you finance the property, based on how long you held the property, all those things. But for the purposes of this discussion, when I call someone a house flipper, that's a person who wanted to buy and sell real estate property for a quick profit. Absolutely. And I think that more and more people are falling into this category of house flipper than before. I think it used to be more just that people would say, okay, I'm now going to go into the business of developing properties. But it feels like a lot of people are doing this on the side and they might live in the house for, you know, six months or so and they're fixing it up while they're living there and then they sell it. But they're still working another job on the side and then they go buy another house and continue this. And so they feel like because they're not you know, they don't have a big company sign up and this isn't what they're doing as their primary income, that they don't fall into this category, but they very easily can. Absolutely. You don't need to 
uh, own a construction toolbox. You don't need to wear a construction hat to be a house flipper. You don't need to be in the business of renovating your uh, uh, construction. You don't need to be a real estate agent. You don't need to have anything in common with real estate industry in general. One transaction is enough for you to be a house flipper. So if out of the blue you were walking past a presentation office uh, for a new uh, condo building and you just walked in, you thought, oh, the prices look good. Why don't I buy uh, a a unit and then uh, sell it as soon as it's uh, ready? And I think I'm going to make some money out of it. You are a house flipper. You are a condo flipper. You, uh, that transaction was what we call it an adventure in the nature of trade, meaning that even though it doesn't look like a business, it's, it doesn't look like it's enough to be business, but for tax purposes, we treat it as a business and you, uh, the, the, any, any income you earn from that transaction will be treated as business income. And I really like that you indicated that there's no sort of magic time frame because I get asked that a lot where I'll have clients that say, well, what if I hold the house for a year? Will that do? Or what if I hold the house for six months? Will that do? And there really is no magic. It's more about your intentions and it's more about the facts that surround that purchase and sale. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. I like to give an example of someone who purchased the house and two months later learned that they're... uh, that he has to relocate for work, uh, you know, 500 miles away. Uh, That person, if that person has to sell the house three months later, that person may be eligible for capital gains exemption. That person will not be a house flipper. But on the other hand, if we are talking about someone who is thinking of buying a house and planning the renovation and sell after two, even three, four years, uh, even though that person will be technically the legal owner of the house for three or four years, but if throughout that period it's obvious that the only intention the person had was to somehow improve the house and sell it for a profit, that person is a house flipper. Absolutely. And I think so few people realize that. And so I think it's very important to get those facts out into the world so people can start thinking about it at the time that they're buying and selling real estate. Um, I'm thinking this is kind of maybe a good segue into our next topic, which when you prose this topic, I was I thought, oh, I'm kind of interested to hear what Anna has to say about this. And so you raise the topic of, okay, if you're going to be buying properties, are you really saving any money by paying cash for those properties? I'm very excited to hear about this topic. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> I may I should have clarified um, the topic when uh, I uh, when I said buying uh, paying cash, I meant paying cash for improvements or renovations on the property. So a lot of people nowadays, especially in Toronto area, Vancouver area, they like to buy an older piece, an older property, and then renovate them extensively or even rebuild them completely um, uh, and and then sell them for a a gain. Uh, What I meant to say is that a lot of times, uh, if you pay in cash to your contractors, they are willing to offer you a bit of a discount. Ah, uh, yes, and, and that discount can be quite significant because because of all the things that are wrong with the arrangement. <laughs> uh, Absolutely, and and a, a lot of people think that. You know, they spend a lot of money. They want the transaction to make business sense. They will take any discount available to them. So they will accept, they will they will agree to payments in cash only to find out later on that they cannot substantiate those expenses, not for income tax purposes and not for HST purposes purposes. And uh, when you're renovating a house for yourself, um, uh, and if it's your house where you want to live, 
in long term, that may not be a bigger problem. And I'm leaving aside all those ethical considerations and safety concerns as well. So if some guy is doing your uh, plumbing and your house burns down two years later, uh, are you really going to think that that discount you received uh, was uh, worth the uh, fire and the fact that your insurance won't cover um, won't cover your loss. Is it was it really a good idea? But it's especially a bad idea for someone who is in the business of rebuilding in, uh, houses. And even though everyone, everyone, if you listen to some of my clients, everyone has to at least some like everyone has had at least one encounter with a. Con- uh, with a um, contractor who says, I only accept cash. <laughs> it's quite common. It's scary how common it is. Um, think about it because you will not be able to substantiate that expense to the CRA, meaning that if they go after you, you will pay tax. On uh, They will not uh, take into account the cost, your construction cost. and uh, your HST, you will not, since you're not paying HST um, on your construction supplies or your labor, you will not be entitled to ITCs on the HST you have to pay um, when uh, you uh, sell your new substantially renovated house. Now, there's a lot of new concepts I'm introducing here, but um, long story short, Paying cash to your contractors is a bad idea, especially if you're in the business of buying and selling houses, rebuilding them. Why? Because you will have no proof of the cost you incurred. You will pay tax on the larger gain. You will not be able to. Um, you will not be entitled to ITCs. These are tax credits that allow you to reduce your HST liability. That's something else we can talk about. And 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 in the end, uh, it, you will be much worse off. And I'm not even talking about the safety concerns of using someone uh, who is uh, you know dealing in cash. Well, and I think that this has some sort of broader broader connotations. So if we take a step back, I, I really like one of the things that you've said, which is, you know, yes, we've got the safety issues, we have the ethical issues, and, and that's that's in and of itself its own problem. But then the other problem that you have is that the money that you might have saved because you're paying someone, you know, under the table or whatever we want to call it, you're probably going to end up paying that back to a tax advisor to help you when CRA comes knocking, or you're going to pay it back in taxes because you're going to have a denial of these tax credits we'll talk about in a minute, or you'll end up in an audit. And one of the things I find happens a lot is even if we take a step back further, and it's not even that you're just you know paying some third party, but I find transactions between family members that this comes up a lot and you'll have, you know, mom and dad are running a house building company and, you know, son decides he's going to go and buy a property that needs to be fixed up. And so then dad comes over in the weekends and helps him out. And there's a little bit of money passing forth here and there. And all of a sudden um, there's an audit that happens because there's a sale of that property and nobody can substantiate anything. And there's nothing ill that's going on. Everyone's licensed. Everyone's official. But it's just that because it's that family relationship, there's a lack of documentation. And so I think it's just important for people to remember that, you know, paper is power. And whether that's electronic paper or it's paper paper, you should be able to substantiate every penny that you've put out on your property. And the invoice should be rendered to the correct person. (laughs) And it should be paid by that person. All of these things are important, regardless of whether you're doing a real estate deal internally within family or within close friends, or whether you're using outside contractors. That's absolutely right. And I do hear, though, that the, um, the industry is changing because of the uh, impact of CRA audits in the last, I want to say, two or three years in the real estate sector, and they were very successful. I want, I, 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 uh, I have some statistics um, 
written down here. Uh, in 2018 alone, the CRA assessed $171 million in additional taxes that uh, related to real estate transactions. Wow, that's huge. $1 million. And uh, I, I hear that in 2019 alone, the CRA received $50 million over five years uh, directed towards a so-called CRA's real estate tax force. So that's the CRA receiving money from the government to to improve their audit game in the real estate sector. And believe me, they put in the money to good use. We see the result of it. So what I see is the slight change already in the industry where some contractors will refuse payments of cash or some um, business people would refuse dealings in cash because they want, don't want to be involved um, in um, in a CRA audit, and they can and those can be quite devastating. Just fighting them will consume your business, will consume your time, your money. It's not fun. Absolutely, and I think what's interesting about the audit process is. Typically, if you if you have done everything you're supposed to and your documentation is in order and you get a request for an audit, if you're able to hand over within, you know, 24 hours the documentation that supports what you did, typically the whole thing dies. It's done. Um, and so just getting that call for an audit does not necessarily mean that you're in for a year long or two years or three year long fight. But it's when you can't give an answer, when you when you get that initial call and it's, oh, I need 45 days to try to pull this together. That's whenever CRA looks at it and goes, well, why? Like, don't you have a folder going somewhere? And then that's what starts down the very long and uncomfortable path. And so if you can have that documentation ready to go, what a difference does it make um, on the front end? True. Another mistake I see people doing is that, you know, we, talk, we were talking about principal residence exemption. And people, especially people in construction industry, they think that living in the house uh, relieves you just living in there for some time while you're building it and then right before you sell it. Somehow it magically relieves you from all reporting obligations, all tax obligations. Suddenly uh, having uh, records is no longer important because you or your family moved into the house and lived in the house for some time before you eventually sold it. And this is where people are confused because they know that there is this principal residence exemption that is available to people when they sell their home. We talked about it in the uh, earlier in our discussion. But what people don't realize is that principal residence exemption is only available to someone who sells their capital property. And I know my, I'm using um, uh, technical terms, so I'm just going to rephrase it to say principal residence exemption is only available who's not buy, to someone who did not buy that house for a flip. So if you're in the construction industry and you purchased the house thinking all this time that you want to renovate it uh, and then sell it for a profit, even if you move in the house, even if your entire family lives there, even if your furniture is there, it does not mean that you're entitled to principal residence exemption and no taxes apply to you. If the CRA can prove that that was just a temporary living arrangement for you, but you were in business, you wanted to flip the house, all the same, you're still a house flipper. You have to report, you have to provide records, you have to substantiate every expense. You are, you're still in business. So that's the biggest problem people have and, and people have. And sometimes it's just because they don't understand. They go, but I lived there. Where, where would Sierra say I lived? I didn't have any other house. I actually lived there, but that may not be enough. 
That's a very good point. And and I think that kind of ties in nicely to the concept or the discussion about GST and HST, because I think that's another area where people are are missing information. Uh, and so I wonder if we can talk a little bit about, uh, I mean, GST and HST considerations when you are when you're buying and selling houses, and not just as a as an individual that's buying your home, but then also as someone who is going to do sort of a house flipping, what are some of the things that they need to keep in mind? Well, the the number one concern, if I were if I were in the business of uh, uh, flipping houses right now, my number one concern before I even consider buying a, a piece of land or an old property. My number one consideration would be the HST that may apply on the sale of property that's new or substantially renovated. And when I say HST, GST would have the same application here. So in very general terms, um, the sale of real estate in Canada is typically you, I want to say not new real estate, use the real estate, uh, is typically exempt. So if you ever bought and sold a house that was not new, if you sold it from a previous uh, resident or if you purchased it from a previous resident, chances are, or most likely, you did not pay HST or GST on that residential property because it's exempt. That exemption does not apply to a sale of property that's new or substantially renovated. So if you ever purchased a new pre-construction condo from a builder, you may have seen it in your purchase agreement. There is an HST component to it. There are also rebates available, but there will be HST on every supply, as we call it, or sale of new or substantially renovated property. And when I say HST, that's GST um, in, in certain provinces. Um, and the only exemption, the only exemption uh, available from GST, HST is the exemption available to builders who are who would build the house with the primary purpose of using it as their residence. So if you're a builder building a house for yourself, hoping to live there long term, then you don't pay HST when, that, uh, when you uh, complete the house. In all other Im- instances, you must pay HST when you sell a, large, a new or a substantially renovated property. And there are lots of wrinkles to the rules that can be quite complex. There are lots of considerations into who the builder is. And here, again, you don't have to wear a hard hat to be a builder. Um, just selling a new property, you know, re- repurchasing it and reselling it from somebody else you may fall into that definition of builder and you may be subject to that HST uh, liability. And HST or GST, as you know it, in Ontario, for example, it's 13%. So on a house that's $1 million, which is an, a, an astronomical uh, amount for uh, Toronto in Toronto area, that's $130,000 in uh, tax liability, in HST liability in in Ontario. That's the money that you must take from your proceeds, from whatever uh, money you get from your purchases, and you have to remit it to the government. And that's that's why I call it HST the profit killer. So if you're a house flipper in Ontario and you buy an old house and you think, oh, well, why don't I renovate it? I'm going to do all the work myself. I'm going to go down the cheap. I'm going to, uh, I think I'm going to make it pretty and sell it for $1 million. What people don't do, they don't subtract $130,000 from that $1 million. 
they don't understand that the $130,000 HSC will apply on the on the house that's worth a million dollars. That is such a good point because that is a huge chunk of change that people are assuming is part of their profit. Absolutely. And once they do the math, a lot of times, uh, construction is very expensive, especially in Toronto area. A lot of times their profits are completely wiped off. So normally the profits people make after a year of hard work planning and, you know, uh, organizing, working with different contractors, designing, all that work will be for nothing. Once you pay HSC, you will you may not make any money. And that not many people in, um, uh, consider that. Well, and, and this kind of goes back to something you were saying a little bit earlier as well when you were talking about HST and you raised the phrase ITCs or input tax credits. And I think a lot of people are a bit um, confused about what those are and, and what type of a credit that you can get. So I wonder if you could discuss that a little bit as well. Absolutely. ITC in very general term is the HST or GST you uh, incur as you uh, incur expenses in the course of your commercial activity. So in this example here, if we're building a house uh, for a flip, we are buying uh, windows, doors, we are paying for, uh, I don't know, uh, painting, we're paying uh, our architect, demolition people, we're incurring all those expenses. Most, if not most of those expenses, are subject uh, to HST. One major expense that's not subject to HST is your original purchase of a piece of land or your old house that you purchased um, with the intention to make it into a business project. So, to use a simple example, let's say. Uh, you uh, purchase a piece of land uh, for $1 million. And my apologies, this is just our reality here in Toronto. These are are our numbers. $1 million uh, land lot in Toronto, there is no HST on it. Then let's say you spend uh, $700,000 building a uh, new property on that piece of land. Um, You must have paid HST on that $700,000 construction materials and labor. It's usually it's subject to HST. And they then let's say you sold the house for $2 million. You only get to claim ITCs. You, you only get to reduce your HST liability on $2 million sale, meaning $260,000 HST liability. You only get to reduce it by the uh, HST you paid on your construction supplies, meaning on your $700,000 expense. You don't get to reduce your HST liability on the cost of the land because you didn't pay any HST on the cost of land. So your total liability, HST liability in Toronto terms, I'm talking about $260,000, will only be reduced um, by uh, the HST you paid on your construction uh, cost, which would be roughly, I don't know, closer to uh, $100,000. So, but and then you have to have all the documentation to support that as well. Yes. And that's assuming you have every piece of invoice and everything's perfect, that everyone has valid HST numbers and addresses and everything is absolutely perfect, even in the best case scenario, which I've never seen in my practice you will still have at least $160,000 of HST liability in my example. That's the money that's coming out of your profit and not many people realize it. 
That's that's so important because I think if you can sort of plan this out on the front end before you get all the way through a project and then realize it. And I mean, renovation projects always run over and cost more than you expect, but at least you want to be able to know what you're getting into and what the best case scenario is on the front end and figure out some way to keep this documentation and make sure that you can at least do your maximum set off possible of your GST and HST. So I think that's a, an excellent point, Anna. I wonder if we should move into the gossip now before we close this, this sort of excitement about what you've been hearing in terms of the principal residence exemption. Uh, what I heard, uh, the last thing I heard was a leaked document uh, that uh, um, supposed to be authored by a liberal um, MP based in Toronto, and that document was titled Policy um, Policy Proposal to Housing Affordability, and it was dated November 27, 2018. And this document appears to propose um, a... Uh, appears to propose additional tax on um, depending on uh, the number of years you held the house. So there, there was a suggestion for an additional 50% tax after one year of ownership, 25% after two years of ownership. And there was uh, a commentary about how speculators are driving the prices of our, our uh, houses up and make houses unaffordable to regular people. So it, it, if you read that proposal, it basically says speculators are bad. We should tax the speculators. This is all very scandalous, Anna. Uh, it's it's out there. It, the, uh, the document is available. Uh, I think even CBC um, quoted it and provided the picture of the document. But here's one thing. The when you read the document, you, uh, you, you as, a, as a tax person, you understand that whoever drafted the document has no idea how our current tax rules work. So the whole narrative about how bad speculators, speculators are, it's true. But guess what? We've been taxing the speculators for decades already in Canada. You already pay over 50% in taxes if you are a house flipper and you flip in houses, buying and selling them for a profit. We're already taxing speculators quite heavily. So this the, the document is meant to address a problem that's been solved already. So what the document that's used to scare people into believing that principal residence will be taken away from us may not be as scary because I don't think someone who, the person who drafted the document knew what he or she was talking about. What the liberal MP uh, who was connected to the document said that, oh, it was just the notes, uh, the notes we took during our town hall meetings. And then both parties uh, accused each other of lying, and this is where we are today. So that document, to me, is not a clear indication of, of, uh, on what's happening, because to me, as a tax person, it makes little sense. It, it proposes a tax that's already in place, that speculators tax, we already tax people in who are in the business of buying and selling houses. Having said all that, if, if, if you ask me whether that means that we're not going to see any changes in capital gains tax or in the principal residence exemption or, you know, in... Um, taxation of real estate or taxation in uh, taxation of capital gains in general, whether you ask me whether I think that may change, my answer will be probably 
I won't be shocked if if it does, be, just simply because the overall direction of the policy of the Liberal Party seems to be clear. I I I don't think they will lower our taxes. Uh, <laughs> I and and if if anything, you know, we may see an increase on. A lot of people are talking about the change in capital gains inclusion, meaning that uh, more of your gain will be subject to tax. Right now, only 50% of your gain is subject to tax. Some people are talking about 75%. So changes may be coming, especially when we see uh, the reports of the federal deficit after COVID. So I, I do think we will start paying a lot more money in tax, and I don't know what that tax may be. I don't know whether it's principal residence or capital gains inclusion or changes to lifetime capital gains exemption. I don't know what it will be, but the overall <laughs> the overall direction is clear. We're not going to get a tax break, that's for sure. Well, and I guess maybe just for posterity purposes, we should explain that we're recording this uh, in November. We're recording this on November the 16th, and it's going to be released in January. So who knows between now and January what's going to happen? Um, but this is the this is the speculation that's happening, at least right now. Uh, and I'm curious to see with the federal budget, um, which I'm assuming that they're going to give us a budget in 2021 finally, whether we'll see any tax changes that happen there. Well, somebody needs to pay for all this SERP we gave away and uh, and SIBA we gave away and uh, and you know a lot of people are hurting. Obviously, it's it is a very very difficult times. So my heart goes out to small businesses, especially. But you know, there's nothing for free. Somebody needs to be paying for it. Absolutely. So I guess we'll have to stay tuned and, and see what the government ends up doing, uh, because it it will certainly it will certainly be interesting. And I have a feeling in twenty twenty one we'll get some more insight into where they're going. Yep. Well, we'll know eventually, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Anna, I really appreciated your time today. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And uh, I know that this will be very helpful for the listeners uh, to hear some of this information. And I hope for those of you listening that we gave you some food for thought or at least made you smile. And I hope that you visit the show notes for any resource material that we reference throughout the episode and to find out more about Anna. And in particular, I'll make sure that we do a link to Anna's blog where she does talk about some of this and some other excellent tax topics that you may wish to check out. So thank you so much for listening. And if you're interested in reading or learning more, I invite you to subscribe to my weekly blog, The Tax Chick Blog. And if you have an idea for a future episode or a burning question you would like to see discussed, please send me an email at thetaxchickpodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and click subscribe to be notified when new episodes are posted. Please note that the views, thoughts, and, and opinions expressed in this podcast episode belong solely to the speakers and are not necessarily the views of the speaker's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. In addition, the information provided and discussed in this podcast is not legal advice. We encourage you to consult with your legal advisor for specific advice. Music.